This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Xavier Le Pichon. Download the MP3 of The Produced Show at onbeing.org. With France. Hello. Hello. <laughs> this is Krista. Okay, this is Xavier. It's good to have you at the other end of the microphone. <laughs> yeah, it seems to work. <laughs> it does. It's actually, uh, when I describe this to people, they, they feel that it sounds very impersonal, but it can actually be quite intimate um, because we're completely, uh, completely dedicated to listening without all of those visual cues that you get when you're sitting across from someone. Oh, that's true. <laughs> so um, I'd, like, I'd like to hear you say your name, because I want to say it as closely to that as I can. Okay, Xavier Le Pichon. Wonderful. Um, Mitch, what do you think? Should we? Can we go ahead and start? No, I'm fine. Okay. Um, do you have any questions of me before we begin? Uh, not really. All right. Um, I don't know if Except you... Except maybe I like to to be who you are, but, but that's something else. <laughs> it may take some time. Yes. Well, I, I actually have a book that I wrote. We'll send you a copy of my book so that okay. after the fact you can know more about me if you want to. Okay, I, I don't know if you spoke with Jean Vanier, but I had such a wonderful oh, conversation very, with him. Uh, yeah, I, it's a very good friend of mine. So. Yes. And um, all right. Well, let's, let's just start... Um, the wonderful thing about this format is we get to have a real conversation. Um, we'll edit it down afterwards, but um, we we get to really delve in. And mm-hmm. um, and I do interview uh, many scientists from different fields. Um, what I'm interested in is that intersection, which I see very much in wonderful and very intriguing ways in your life. Um, that you are a scientist and also... Um, a person with a theology and how those things um, are not always the same and yet come together and interact. So, mm-hmm. um, but I would like to start by getting a sense of your um, your background, wondering if there was a religious background to your childhood. Yes, yes, I had. My parents were committed Christians, so I was educated in the Christian faith. And actually, I can say that I've been a a dedicated Catholic all my life. Mm-hmm. I've been going to to mass every day since I was young. So, mm. see, that was very a, a constant in my life. I uh, noticed that you were born in Vietnam. Is that right? Yes, yes. My parents uh, were living in Vietnam at the time, and uh, I had the war in Vietnam. Actually, I was in a concentration camp, like all the French with the Japanese. Uh. That was a strong experience in my life, and. Uh. Uh, then I came, I discovered France when I was uh, eight and a half, nine. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did you, um, how were you drawn then eventually to studying geophysics? Oh, uh, that's, um, 
Something that came from my very early life. Actually, when I was in concentration camp, we were on the shore of the Pacific Ocean, and I was wondering what was below the, the water, you know, when mm. I was on the, mm. on the beach. And I was saying, I have to find out what's below the water, what happens when it gets deeper and deeper. And this question has been present since. I, I wanted to know about the deep ocean. I wanted to know about the earth. The earth has always been, uh, for me, a living being, uh, one with whom I share a lot of things. Mm. And when I think about it, when I model it and so on, I, I have it in my head, you know, like a living being. So I have a very close relationship with earth that I consider a little bit like my mother. Mm. And uh, that has uh, colored my scientific life. I wanted to know, I wanted to understand, I wanted to find out about it. And uh, I had great um, possibilities. I discovered many things. And uh, this has been marvelous for me. Uh, I've, uh, I've entered into this uh, deep relationship with the earth. And, you know, the, the remarkable thing about science is you ask questions uh, to the earth or to other object in the universe. And if you ask properly the question, you get answers and you begin a dialogue. This is what is science about. Mm. And I've been entered, I entered into a dialogue with the earth since I was young and I've never stopped doing that. So that has been part of my life. It's very interesting too that in your field, well, you helped create the field of plate tectonics. Um, and it really is a field in which, which experienced revolutionary leaps forward um, in your lifetime, <clears throat> in your lifetime and that you were part of. Right. Yeah, that, that was a, a very important experience for me, yes. But could you say something about that revolution? I mean, you titled an essay you wrote about the history of geophysics, the modern history. You entitled yeah, it, My Conversion yeah. to Plate Tectonics. But I, I think right, that most yeah. people don't even have the context to understand what the conversion was from. <laughs> yes, well, you have to understand that when I was a student, when I was educated as a student, the earth was considered uh, a place where everything was um, static. You know, things hmm. were moving up and down, but never laterally. Continents had always been there. The, the ocean had always been there. There had been a, a guy called Alfred Wegener in, in the, during the First World War that proposed the continental drift. But since then, the story had been killed. Huh. And I was educated in, in a world that we call fixist. You know, things were not moving. Right. And uh, we discovered that was completely wrong. And, and everything I had... Uh, Learn everything had tried to do uh, before that was wrong. Actually, the Earth is uh, an extraordinary living being with uh, motions of the oceans and continents and the thousands of miles and uh, continuously changing, evolving, and and th this is this was a tremendous shock. Um, when I made the the first model of the moving plates, you know, I well, the one compute the, the right, world right. kinematic model and and uh, I when I I spent three months working alone I was uh, 30 29 at the time and uh, nobody wanted to work with me they thought that was a crazy idea <laughs> right. I was working all the night at the computer and one night, uh, finally, I put everything together and I found that, you know, the example, Hawaii was getting closer to Tokyo every year by eight centimeter and things like that and when I 
came down for breakfast with my wife. I told her, you know, I'm going to be the most famous man in the, on the earth. Right. <laughs> I have discovered how the earth works. You know, right. I really know it now. Right. And I was so excited. So this is the, the remarkable thing about the, the scientific discovery. You know, you, you enter with this dialogue, and when you ask the proper question, you get the proper answer. I could, for example, check that uh, with my model, the earthquakes were occurring exactly where they were supposed to be, they, mm. with, with the right direction and so on. So that, that was a tremendous experience. Mm. You know? I had uh, the other type of discovery that I've made, which I, I like very much too, but we, which is a level a little bit below, which is the, 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 the discovery of a, a new... Um, place in the ocean, for example. I was the first one to dive in the middle of the ocean in the rift right. in uh, 3,000 meters with submersible. And uh, th that, that was a tremendous experience. I had the, ex the impression that, uh, you know, landing at the place where no uh, human had ever been and actually no living being had looked at it because it's in complete darkness. We were the first to put light in there. Right. And, and this was the place that had just been fabricated out of the, uh, of the earth. You know, it's, it's new earth. I had the impression, being a religious man, that uh, I was back to Genesis, you know, mm. finding out uh, the new world. And that was a strong impression, but it did not have this added uh, extraordinary thing, which is understanding and entering into this dialogue with with the the universe, with the, the the material world, it's something that is so is coming through so clearly in the way you're describing your work that I I love about my conversations with scientists is um, <laughs> it, it it's a really almost in some ways as much as religion it's a way of seeing the world and. Um, being in the world, that, that scientific dis discovery changes the way we see the world and are in the world. I don't think many of us pause to consider that very often, but you have been there as that was happening. Yes, it's, it's true that um, you are entering into uh, something which, which is, the, I think, one of the greatness of man which is he is able to interact with his environment in in an intellectual mode. That is to find out how how this environment works and begin to to interact with him, to ask him questions, to obtain answer, to begin to modify it. Which is of course an enormous responsibility, but at the mm. same time, it's extremely exciting. Mm. You know, it's a, you, you really. Uh, for me, who is religious, you really uh, get this uh, word of God, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the Genesis, you know. Uh, mm. right. Take possession of the world. Take possession of the world and take care of it. You know, right. I, I, right. I, I give it to you and try to make good use of it. So a second passion of your life um, I'll just put it this way, has been a, a presence and awareness and a, and a presence uh, to suffering in the world. And I, I'd like to ask also how and when that began to evolve in you. Um, this this has, had been a, a major crisis in my life. Uh, I was already a, a relatively famous scientist, you know, uh, uh, and um, that was in 1970. 
three. Okay. So by this time I was 36, but I had made all these discoveries that had made me famous. And I was back in France uh, building a very large laboratory where there are now more than 1,000 people working. Mm. And um, I progressively discovered that I was so immersed in my research, in my scientific life, that uh, I was not seeing the others anymore. I was, in particular, I was not seeing the people in difficulty and suffering. Hmm. And that was a very, very strong uh, crisis. And actually, uh, it led me to decide to quit science. Hmm. And I resigned from all my positions. And I went to uh, Calcutta, to Mother Teresa's place. I spent uh, six weeks there working with the brothers of charity, you know, working in the street, working with the dying people and so on. And I had the meeting with... uh, you know, giving uh, food to one of these uh, small children who were, who was dying of, of hunger. He was at the last stages. Suddenly, I had this experience that is, to me, the founding experience of humanity, which is uh, discovering uh, through empathy that uh, you really uh, are one with the man who is suffering, you know. Mm. You identify yourself with this person, and 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 the, this can be so strong. So I made at the time the promise to this small child that I, I will try from now on not to ever uh, turn away my my eyes from somebody who is suffering. Hmm. And I, that was a turning point in my life. You you wrote a beautiful essay about that experience. Yeah. It begins with that experience, Eke Homo, yeah. and you. You, so this child was at Mother Teresa's home for dying and destitute. So we, he was dying, right? This, this That's right. Child. He There's was dying. No he probably question. died mm-hmm. yeah, one or two days later. Right. And you wrote, and, you wrote um, as I had been standing on the crest of the advancing wave of our scientific and technological civilization, I did not even glance at the debris left over by its flow. I was looking ahead, and suddenly among the debris of civilization— this child becomes for me a person, the most important person in my life. Yeah, and and I think this is this is the, the the basic founding experience of humanity. You know, when you discover that, uh, you change your way of being, and you begin to to make your life one which is uh, walking with, sharing the life of people who are suffering. And that completely changes the nature of uh, of what you are doing, of your life. And uh, after this experience, you know, I went back to, to France and I had discussion with my wife, with my children and and uh, with the the priest who was uh, with Jean Vanier at the founded L'Arche. You right, know, this Father place where you, Thomas Philippe. Father Thomas Philippe, mm-hmm. this place where you have... Uh, um, they try to share the life of person uh, share, uh, having a handicap, right? And um, a mental handicap. And this, this, um, the the priest at the time told me, you know, uh, it's good to come to Larche and to share the life of these people, but you have something to do in science. So I ask you to go back to science. Hmm. So I went hmm. back to science, which was not easy because once you have resigned of all things, right. it's difficult to reclimb the thing, you know. Right. But I did. And, but 
from then on, ch- something changed. We were living in the community of Flash with the people with a handicap. Now, you have, um, you have six children, is that right? I read that. Five and an adopted Vietnamese child. And yes. did you have all, so you moved it into the community? At the time, we had on, uh, only uh, three. Only three. After <laughs> that, we had, we, had, we had three more. All right. <laughs> One that we adopt, ad, ad, adopted and, mm-hmm. and two. Uh, to to that came later, hmm. but uh, the one um, the the oldest one at the time was uh, eleven. Hmm. So we discussed some with him, and and uh, the this when I told them that I was keeping my job, you know, going back to science, they say okay. They, right. they were very nervous about the idea that I would, uh, especially he. Right. He's a scientist by now. Oh, okay. He, <laughs> he wanted very, very much me to continue uh, this uh, this life of in science. Now, d- is it true that you moved in with uh, not the large community, but another community in Trosliboy, um That was in no, th- no, no, no. We okay. we moved in 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 Larch Oh, you did. And right. then later on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we moved there, and I worked in Pais, which was not very convenient. It was okay. about one and, one and a half hour away. But then uh, later on, um, I started uh, at the request of Father Thomas Philippe, a center uh, near Sisteron, where we live in the south of France, where we have in particular a special um, way of uh, getting the people who have... Uh, Mental uh, disturbance in their among the, the the people of their family, you know, right. people who are who are um, you sometimes have table suffering. That's when I, one thing I found out that among the caregivers, the, right, for the families, yeah, uh-huh. the, the the caregivers and the families. You know, you have parents who have two, three children with. Uh, Veil deep uh, mental thickness, mm-hmm. and mental thickness is probably one of the the most terrible suffering days because the the people know that they are sick, mm-hmm. and they cannot control their head, and it becomes something extremely, extremely deep, extremely difficult. So we we try to have uh, some way of helping. Those who are around these people, we, because we, we do not have the facility to really treat the people who are sick, but uh, the family, the, the, the people who are n- next to them, the people who, who take care of them, they, they need some time, you know, to, to so, find them. Right, so you can c- create a community of care around them, just relationships. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. We, try, we try to have a time where they, they can uh, really... Uh, Prendre pied, we say in French, uh, touch down, mm, in a way. Right, right, yeah. right. So, and as you said, you, you've been a devout um, Catholic all your life. But it, it also yeah. seems to me um, that these experiences that you've had, um, this um, this experience of community, of compassion, that that this these experiences have also formed and nuanced your faith in very concrete and very theological ways. And I'd just like to talk about a little bit of that. I mean, I, in that yes. same essay where you wrote about that child mm-hmm. in Calcutta, you, you said you suddenly understood the incarnation. The, you understood Jesus on the cross saying, my God, but, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, I think the, this, is, um, this is the mystery that uh, Jesus has asked us to, to, to get into, uh, you know, which is the mystery of uh, 
of the the neighbor who who is suffering and uh, he tell he doesn't give a direct clue about what's going to happen but he tells us look try try to go to them and to live with them and and see what happens how your life is going to be changed this is what i've been doing right and i've progressively discovered that this was the essence of his message, you know, that uh, if we did not follow this message, we could not enter into a real deep relationship with God, that God is mercy and, and God can be found uh, only in the measure in which you, you enter in this uh, deep companionship with those that uh, he loves best because they need him most, mm. which are the, the, the people having deep suffering. So that that has been uh, the progressive discovery I made, and and then I began to look into, uh, you know, the history of man. Right. I found out that uh, that um, when you look at the history of man, as as far as you go, you find that he had this extraordinary ability to to empathize with the other. Otherwise, you cannot explain why. A man from Neanderthal, uh, hundred thousand years ago in in Iraq, you know, uh, was able to 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 take care of uh, highly handicapped man in in very difficult circumstances. Right, we have we have evidence of that, don't we? That surprised right, scientists. Yeah, this, this and this is coming more and more. You know, in the beginning mm-hmm. they were saying it's a fluke or thing like that, but right. it's it's skeleton of people who are so physically handicapped that. They could not even feed themselves. They could not walk. So at this time, you know, you, these people, they, they were walking every day, maybe five miles, ten miles. They had to, to carry them on, 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 on the back. They had to feed them. Uh, it was very harsh life, you know. So they were hunter-gatherers. So mm-hmm. how, how did they decide that... that uh, no, we will not do like the animals to leave them on the side, but we will change our life. We will change our community to put this guy in the center and, and to live with him. And we know that it's beyond 40 years of age. I mean, so it's a very long time. And, and that um, discovery um, c- contradicts a kind of a simplistic, I would say, simplified, straightforward Darwinian understanding of survival, right? Of survival that that in, that that would imagine that people who were who had no utility, who were weak, who would drag others down, would simply be left by the wayside. Is that right? Right. I, th- I think it is. There is now among the the scientists a, a great effort to understand uh, why man has uh, really uh, be able to to go to cooperation and to uh, helping the others. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm, I'm participating next week in a World Science Festival in Right, I saw that, and, yes. Yeah, and, and um, it's interesting. I told them um, my, my view is that something is missing in what you are trying to explain because the basic thing is not why man is helping the others. The basic thing is why man has this ability to empathize, to, to, to identify himself with a suffering person, which leads him, of course, after that, to decide to help him, right. to share the life with him. Hmm. This is what's so unique about man. 
And this is the experience that lots of very important people who have changed the, 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 the evolution of humanity have made, like Buddha, like Confucius, like Isaiah, and like Jesus, of course. You know, they, they, they say, what can we do about suffering? What can we do about the suffering person? What can I do about it? You know, right. that, that's something extraordinary. And I think it is a basic, the basic human experience. So something that's very interesting to me about your approach to all of this is, let's say, um, the French philosophers and scientists of the 18th and 19th century would have looked at this child in misery in Calcutta or would have looked at the earthquakes that you study as a, as a specialist in plate tectonics and seen all of that and the suffering it created as a refutation of the notion of God, right? <laughs> but, yeah, there but, has been this famous discussion between Voltaire and Rousseau about right. the Lisbon earthquake. That was about it, yeah. 1755. But yeah, you, yeah. you look at what you know from plate tectonics um, and how weakness is part of a system that, in fact, is alive. And and this also flows into your your understanding of right. empathy think, and compassion. Exactly. I mean, I think this is an, a very important point, which is passed over nowadays. And I think it's going to be a big discovery in, in uh, life sciences when they realize the importance of the fragility of human life and the fact that the, the human life um, is really uh, so fragile that uh, it needs to create a whole new way of uh, of culture of dealing with with the others uh, the the fragility is the essence of of man and women and mm -hmm. it is at the heart of of humanity And once you realize that, you realize that uh, you accept your own fragility. You see? Right. Uh, this is one of the things we discover in community where you, take, you live with people who have deep suffering, that uh, they, they make you realize that you have your own fragility, your own weakness, and that you don't have to be ashamed of it. You just have to share it and, and say, look, I am like you, you know. And, and, and that really frees the, the persons. Mm -hmm. And I think that also you draw analogies between how a whole community works, which is incorporating that fragility as part yes, of its living being, and even what you know about how, <laughs> how, how the earth works. Yeah, it's true that uh, I was very, very um, impressed by uh, one of these things, which is the the way earthquakes are fabricated, which is that, uh, uh, you know, in the in the lower layer of the earth where the the temperature is high, then the defaults that are within the rocks are activated and the rocks are able to deform uh, without fracture become what we call ductile, you know, they flow. Right. But when the, the temperature is, is low and cold, it's cold, uh, like in the upper few miles of the earth, then they are rigid. Uh, these weaknesses cannot be expressed. And as a result, the rocks uh, are much more resistant, much more rigid, and they react by you 
reached their limit of uh, resistance and suddenly, bing, you have a major commotion and an earthquake. Right. And so the difference is that in one case, the, the defaults play a role in, in uh, putting weakness in that and, and making things much more smooth, mm-hmm. you know. And in the other case, it's very rigid. And I find in the society, it's very often the same thing in the community. Community which are very strong, very rigid, that uh, do not take into account the weak points of the community, the people who are in difficulty that, and so on, tends to be community that, that do not evolve. evolve. And uh, when they evolve, it's generally by, by very strong commotion, revolution, we call them in right, French. Right, right. You make that you distinction know? between systems that incorporate <laughs> fragility and evolve uh, and then systems yeah. that are, become rigid and then need revolutions yeah. to move forward. There is a very simple example that I have found time and time again and experienced myself. It's a, it's a couple who, who gets his first child, you know. The first child is is extremely weak. Uh, mm. He he has no power, nothing. But he is really the boss right. <laughs> in the house. You know, right. as soon as he says, the, um, he cries. He asks for something. Up, everybody is is at his service. Right. You know, e- everything evolves around this new child, and it is the same thing when in a family or community. You really uh, are taking care with love of somebody who is sick or in the last stage of his life. Suddenly everything turns about about this person. Mm -hmm. And that is what is extremely specific of man community. Mm -hmm. Man community have been built around two kinds of, I call them poles, you know, centers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have reorganized themselves around the, the, the small one, the babies, because otherwise there is no, no, no life possible. So that's we share with all the mammals. But also, and that's very specific of man, about the, the people who are uh, in great difficulty because of suffering, because of sickness, because of handicap, because uh, life is coming to the end. Right. And that's really very new and special. And that introduces a, a distinct a distinct touch into the society. You know, it becomes a society which we call human. You know? Right, <laughs> right. Humane, actually. Right, right. In French, we say use the same word, but humane, that is, it, it, it it is different from an animal society. It, it's really, there is a new touch, a new kindness, a new uh, softness, a new uh, way of living, which is completely introduced by the fact that you put the weakest in the center of the community. And they become the one who are going to regulate the life of the society. So... You know, I want to clarify just before we go on that, you know, for you um, as a deeply religious and I would say an orthodox religious Catholic, um, evolution is not a word that is in contradiction at all with with your faith, right? Not at all. Right. No, I, I find that, uh, you know, the, the thing that that God obviously has given us is, is uh, the faculty to, to evolve uh, with the whole world. In other words, he... He gave us a, a creation which is not finalized. And we have in our hands the possibility to finalize it. 
And he shows us that everything is not arbitrary. You know, it's not something that, uh, you know, he created uh, some species of animals, some uh, species of plant and so on once and definitely, and he did it and that's it. No, he puts the system in root and he lets it evolve. And and actually he, he makes... He has confidence in in, hmm. in 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 what he's giving and and in in the beauty of the world and he lets it evolve. He's there. He supports it, but he he does not arbitrarily change the law all the time. You right. know? He put a system in which we can understand. It's an understandable system. It's a system that is given to us, and actually I um, I find it extremely. Uh, interesting and beautiful to discover how he has prepared all this possibility we have in us hmm. through the evolution. And 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 what I also find interesting in your work and your thought is that y- at the same time you 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 ask some different questions of evolution than than maybe um, someone looking at this idea of evolution from a strictly scientific point of view would ask. I mean, you're very concerned, as you've been talking about, about how we evolved into what we call human, humane. Um, And you've pointed out that we tend to tell the story of the evolution of humanity through tool-making capacities uh, and physiological um, evolution, but not these psychological factors. And you, you've spent a lot of time in this, in this essay, Eke Homo, writing about what we sometimes in English call the axial age, around the 6th century BCE, I, yeah, where yeah. you feel there was a real, and I, you, you feel there was a real psychological, uh, almost a spiritual step forward. So tell a little bit of you know, how, you, how you tell well, that story. Well, I, I was, um, I, I discovered after that, uh, that was, told by me by a Chinese philosopher that Carl Jaspers, you know, the philosopher, had already talked about this extraordinary 6th century before uh, Christ in which there has been these summits of uh, of, uh, philosophy and religion which were Buddha, Confucius, uh, the second Isaiah, Mm -hmm. and so on. And um, I was immediately struck by the fact that uh, this came after the Iron Age right. uh, began to, to, to modify very deeply the culture of man and introduced the culture of terrible uh, extermination war that you see everywhere. You see them in, in the East Asia, in China. You see them in the Middle East, uh, in Assyria and uh, all this, this world and this this was a, a tremendous change from even a few thousand years before the introduction of uh, even in France, Frank. But with with uh, at this time, you begin to see fortification coming uh, everywhere mm. among mm. these people. So Do that you, was a, a terrible time. With, you have power with, and you have abuses of power. You have yeah, mm-hmm. abuses of power in, on a scale that we can right. barely imagine now. I mean, see a little bit like uh, what happens in some of the the countries now, but but for us it's horrifying, mm-hmm. and and uh, then you have these people coming up and saying, uh, "Man is not that." You say, "Man right. is not that." Right? You call them the prophets. These. The prophets, mm-hmm. yes, they are prophets. In mm-hmm. other words, they are they are shouting a completely new message. Look, you are not like that. Man is not like that. Mm. 
This is not the explanation of man. Man can fight the the harm, the difficulty, the suffering through tenderness, kindness, through companionship, and and this is the same message you find everywhere. You know what. Do you do with your suffering? What do you do with the suffering of the others? Right, and and uh, that that's where I think your emphasis is is you know adds something because as you say, Carl Jaspers has told this. Karen Armstrong yeah, recently yeah. wrote a book about the uh, axial age. But what you're pointing out is that Buddha, Confucius, Second Isaiah, Lao Tse. What they were all focusing on, I mean, yes, this did give rise to new ideas of compassion and what it means to be human. But what they were all focusing on, what they all saw and pondered is what you saw and pondered in Calcutta with that dying child. And that is the fact of suffering. And it right. was it was facing suffering that led to that kind of breakthrough. It, it's, it's, again, it's this remarkable capacity of man of uh, identifying himself with the person in front of him that, who is suffering. And uh, that that leads him to to recognize that he's like him, that he's him. You know, uh, I like the word of Isaiah. It's, it's, it's my own flesh. This Isaiah, person in uh-huh. front of me, yes, right. is my own flesh. And, uh, and, and uh, this is exactly what uh, Jesus says in the chapter 25 of Matthew, you know, the Mm-hmm. The last judgment, when when he say, when he identifies himself with the poor, it's nothing else than this capacity of man to identify oneself with the person who is really uh, suffering in front of him. You know what um, the 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 gospel of the Sam- good Samaritan calls the neighbor, the neighbor that is the one who bre- suddenly becomes so close to you that uh, he enters into your life. And right. changes your life, right. you know, not because he was somebody close to you. It, you just, he just happened to to meet him on the sidewalk, you know, and and but but he had this deep encounter. He could not resist, and he takes him and uh, and, and and takes care of him and say, you know, I, I will pay for him later on, and so on. So this is this extraordinary experience that I believe has changed the life of. Many, many, many people. You see that each each time there is a big catastrophe, like this recent uh, plane crash in, right. in the in the Atlantic. Of course, it was very strongly felt here in, in France. France right. But but uh, you see immediately the people. You know, they, they it's a shock for them. It, they they become immediately extremely um, close to the people who have suffered through this uh, accident. Mm-hmm. You know, the, this is this capacity of empathy. It, it's something incredibly um, moving. It changes the people. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, to me, the, the major experience that we have to, to explain. And I think biological sciences are going to look at that more and more. It's interesting, isn't it, what, how biological sciences are looking at altruism and compassion yes, and forgiveness. Yes, altruism yes. Is, is new, Yes, <laughs> uh, but, they, but they work hard on that. And now they, they, I think they are going to move to, to compassion and to the capacity of empathy because otherwise they will not understand anything. Let me, you know, let they me, need to go beyond let that. Me, let me ask you this. This has been on my mind as I've been watching this de- mm-hmm. development in science. And so... Um, 
you have someone like I, I love this story about Dorothy Day, the the Catholic yeah. social activist, that she yeah. experienced the San Francisco earthquake when she was six years old, yeah. and she saw what you're describing, what happens after a catastrophe. She saw people pouring out to care for each other and to take care of each other, and she asked herself, "Why can't we live this way all the time?" <laughs> now, you know, in a community like Lars, I mean, I meet people and speak with people. Um, all the time who are living that way, who've turned their lives mm. over to caring. Mm. But it's not the norm, right? I mean, when the plane crashes in, in the ocean, there is, or when, you know, when something like September 11th happened, there is this very dramatic outpouring of care. But then it, it kind of, you know, life goes back to normal, at sure. least on the surface. Sure. So do you have a sense of, I mean, do you have a sense of evolution of this? Do you feel that... Um, you know, what is, what is the difference between what happens when people actually do turn their lives over to this and make this normal? And do you have any sense from the sweep of your lifetime that, that maybe well, more people that, move in that direction? I don't know. I'm not sure that, what I'm asking. That's a, a very important question you're asking. And this is one I've often asked myself. I have found, uh, I have known some people that I considered, you know, very generous, very open and so on. And I've seen them uh, progressively close themselves, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, begin to shut the doors, to, to, to be afraid of being invaded by, by this problem from the outside. And, and uh, it's as if their heart, you know, uh, was shriveling. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, why is that? I don't know. Uh, others... The the, you know the, you have the impression that they are always more and more open. I've known some extraordinary people. I met Mother Teresa, I've known of course Jean Vanier, I've known uh, Father Thomas Philippe, and mm-hmm. so on. Who are people who who had this extraordinary capacity to to enter into relationship with people, always open, and in relationship in which they immediately. Join, you know, the part which is most hidden and hurt in them. Mm-hmm. They have this capacity to to enter into this new life, and it seems to deepen and deepen with time. It's as if you had two different ways. Mm-hmm. Now, for most of the people, it, it's something in between. Right, you have right. this kind of of big awakenings. When when the big catastrophe happens, either a collective one like a war, an epidemic, a thing like that, or major accident, but it it can be also a, a tragedy inside the family right. or just outside, and and um, they may react in a way that you cannot predict. Sometimes it it's very bad. Sometimes it it opens them up. So it's 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 something uh, difficult, but. My experience is that once you enter into this way of, I would call it uh, companionship, you know, walking with the the suffering person that have come into your life and that you have not rejected, then your heart progressively gets educated by them. Hmm. You know, they teach you a right. new way of being. Your heart gets educated. I like that. Yeah, uh-huh. yes. The, the, 
we have to be educated by the other. Our heart cannot be educated by yourself. I mean, my heart cannot be educated right. by myself. Right. It, it can only come out of relationship with others. And if we accept to be educated by the others, to let the other explain to us, you know, what happens to mm-hmm. them, you know, how they feel, which is completely different from what we feel, and, and to let yourself immerse into uh, their world so that they can get into our world, then you begin to share something which is very deep. You will never be the person in front of you, but you will have created what we call communion, the capacity to, to share at a very deep level. And I feel that that is, you know, the essence of life. And that's what Jesus is, uh, came to teach us, you know. Learn how to enter into communion with your neighbors, the way you call it, neighbors. Mm. And, and then uh, you will see, you will discover something completely new. You know, I feel that maybe <clears throat> because of your, science, your scientific knowledge as well as your faith, you, your, your understanding of, of the human spirit and of the soul as you're describing right now, is kind of is kind of an evolutionary understanding. You know, I, I was struck by these lines that you wrote. Um, our humanity is not an attribute that we have received once and forever with our conception. It is a potentiality that we have to discover with, within us and progressively develop or destroy through our confrontation with the different experiences of suffering that will meet us through our life. Yes, that is definitely a something I, I believe very strongly in. Mm-hmm. You know, we have been um, we have been born with a certain capacity to to do things and in particular to develop our humanity, the capacity to interact with the others in, in a in a loving way. And but but this is a potential, it's not something which is given to us. Mm-hmm. It's a possibility we have. And and that's how we we progressively change. And I think it's the same thing for the society. I think it has been the same thing for the humanity. The humanity doesn't have its humanity acquired once and for all, you know. It has to to build it. And the confrontation that humanity has with the the problems that come uh, at all ages forces invention of a a new answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example... In our age, one of the obvious uh, new uh, difficulty we are dealing with and suffering we are dealing with is the, the extreme age, you know, the very old right, age. Right. The fact that we have these millions of people who we live much in, longer. in the fourth age, like mm-hmm. we call them, eh? uh, which, which is terrible suffering for many of them. Right, uh, right. We, my mother died of... of uh, Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. and I could see what this suffering was. And, and that's, that requires from us to, to invent a new way to, to deal with this person, with this suffering, to make their life possible, humane, you know. And, and this is each, at each age, uh, you have new challenges and you have to face them. And this is how we build the humanity. The humanity is, is like a a, a new things, which is 
given to us as a possibility at old age, at, at each birth, and, and it has to be constructed, it has to be built. It, it is hard work. It is very difficult. Right, work. it is hard work, because what you have now also is this phenomenon of of people in in the U.S., they call them the sandwich generation, people who are at one and the same time raising their own children who need them because of their youth and then taking care of their aging parents who, who may have any, you know, may have Alzheimer's disease, um, may have mm-hmm. any number of, of, of frailties. And, uh, and it's, it's, as you say, it's very, it's, there's also the, there are also the people, the caregivers caught in the middle for whom this, these are hard experiences. This is true. But at the same time, you know, this comes from, uh, I think, a, a biased way of looking at what is human, what are human people. Right. Human people are not adults in full possessions of their means. Human people, it starts with babies. It continues with growing people. It continues with adults. It continues with older people and with the great age and people who, who die. All of that is part of humanity. And humanity is not complete if you have some of these parts out. Right. And, and the way to build a society is the way to integrate these people in a way in which you can interact and each of them can find out that they have their place that uh, their life has a meaning, that they are needed by the others. So often I have found, for example, among very old people that uh, they have the impression that um, they are not useful anymore. You know, mm-hmm. Nobody needs them. And then they want to go. They want to go. Somebody who has uh, a cancer, which is very advanced and... Uh, he doesn't feel that the others are really uh, wanting him to continue to live. Mm-hmm. He will die. He will disappear. Yeah. So there is this this problem that the society cannot live by itself if it doesn't recognize that it is heterogeneous and highly diverse. Right. And that the weakest have to get their place in there. But do you- I I wonder I w- I it would be possible to look around the world today especially as we are all reeling from this the uncertainty of our economic situation and and to worry that it's precisely the weak among us who are going to suffer um just because of budget cuts right um right. and people having to reel in their energies um I mean do you despair given this wisdom that I think you have about how we as human societies and human beings stay most alive by being very vitally present to suffering. You know, I I remember when I was in concentration camp, I was eight by the time, and life was hard. Uh, All the babies were dying of of hunger, and uh, we were together. But I had... I get a very good memory of this time because <laughs> we were all together. We were the center of life. We were continuously present with our parents, uncles, and so on. And and uh, that is not a, a bad <laughs> memory for me right. because I think even under stress, if you find a way to create a community which makes sense to your life, then it becomes extremely important. Uh, 
Once, uh, one day, you know, my, my mother was a very strong woman, and and uh, one day we we got a message from the commandant tour, the, the the Japanese uh, governor of the, of the camp, and he had let us know that uh, he will. Uh, shoot most of the people next day. And my mother said, well, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but today you have to learn your lesson. So come. <laughs> <laughs> right. You see, this, this way of, of uh, living the day as uh, the, the, in- the present instant as something very important that you live together, that you share and you can enter then in communion, which makes very often at times of a hardship or stress. And some people say after, you know, we discovered at this time things that we had not discovered elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So difficulties are here, yes. And I think it makes sense for somebody like me that uh, believes in God that uh, the difficulties are, are larger now than they were maybe two, three centuries ago for, for the challenge for the whole humanity. Right. Why does it make but sense to you? Because we have much more possibilities. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. science and technology have given us the possibility to really answer to these challenges. But they require a proper government. They require that, that we, we really, the humanity, this is the first time in the history of humanity that humanity has to take collective decisions, like for the climate, right. the right. energy, and so on. This is the first time. Right. This never right. happened before. Right. You know, it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, humanity is discovering for the first time that it is a people and that they have a power of decision on their future. Now, depending on what they are going to do, depending on on how they are going to to answer this challenge, uh, the future will be different. But I think it's as if, uh, you know, the humanity was had been educated by, by God to arrive at a stage where it can now you know, really take his future into its hand and decide about what's going to happen now. You know, more and more, you know, it's like a, a child. Right. A child, the, 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 the Neolithic and the Paleolithic were children, really. They, yeah. they were just struggling along. You right. know, they had no vision at all for the future. They had no vision for, for what's going to happen to the earth and so on. But now we have this vision. We have the possibility to to interact with our environment. We have the possibility to take decisions, to change everything. And this is the first time in the history of the world. And the humanity is growing out of age. What it will be, what they will do, I don't know. Right. You know, the, the answer can be wrong. The answer can be bad. But I think it's a very important new step in the history of humanity. So I wonder how you do respond to the the, the theodicy, the question, because, you know, so, as you say, we don't know how many of these crises of our time will be resolved, but we know that many bad things will happen alongside good things, right? I mean, Einstein uh-huh. said that technology in his generation was like a razor blade in the hand of a three-year-old, and and there's a lot that happens with technology. I mean, we have bigger weapons now. So how do you respond to people who say um, the, the fact of all this suffering, of of all the of the bit of the huge dark side of our potentiality really calls into question the idea that there could be a good god behind the universe 
I think th- this is a, a, a very childish um, uh, conception of God. Mm. God is is um, somebody who who is really in front of us, very weak. You know, he loves us. The, the more you love somebody, the weakest you are with this person, mm. because you can be hurt by her, and you don't want to force her to do something. You want her to do it from its own willingness. Uh, that is the attitude of God with us. And we have the proof of that for us Christians who believe in, 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 uh, in Jesus, is that the way he has uh, sent somebody for his son to save us, uh, he did not send a strong man with his legions of angels and so on. Mm. You know? mm. He sent somebody who told us, you have the potential to change the, the world, but I'm not going to force you. It's up to you to decide. It's up to you to, to act. So uh, seeing, seeing God as somebody who, who, who drives everything from above, you know, and decide, hey, let's have a war there. Let's have the, this is ridiculous. I mean, uh, God respects us. He, he, he knows we are people who have the ability to do bad things, good things, and he, he pushes us to go, go in the good direction. But he lets us free. He gives us our freedom. Mm. And I think this is the essence of what we are seeing today. He tries to help, but he doesn't want to take our freedom away. Once he has created something, it's created definitively. He is not going to to do, you know, like uh, for the Noah's Ark, the, the deluge, right, <laughs> the, right, right. The, the, the flood, you know. Uh, he... he he respects his creation. He respects his creation in the material world, in the living world, in the human world. And he, he lets that go. So I think instead of uh, saying uh, God is in charge of that and he's doing, he's doing a poor job, I think the answer is, what did he do when he saw that things were turning really bad on earth? He sent his son to be crucified to take the suffering upon him and to tell us this is the way to do, to, to go with the suffering people, with the poor. This is basically what he does. So mm-hmm. it's, it's exactly the position taken by somebody like Buddha, really, you know. Right, right. You, know? you can change the world, but it's, it's up to you, you know. Mm. Or Mozu, you know, Mozu, this uh, Chinese philosopher, one century after Confucius, which, which is extraordinary thing about sacrifice, you know. It, it, it's not good to, 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 to kill somebody uh, to, to save the world, but if you, by killing yourself you can save the world, then it is good. Hmm. You know, it, it is the same attitude. It, right. it is this attitude that uh, God you know, is, is a mystery, but he can be discovered only through the weak, the fragile, the, the part of us and, and around us. And then we discover that this has a power of transformation of the world, not not through uh, very strong armies or right. <laughs> rockets or whatever that is. You know, and, and I, 
I was excited to interview you. I, I've been fascinated with plate tectonics, actually, yeah, because I <laughs> yeah. still I think I hear that informing your theology all the way through. Because yeah. after, do you remember there was the terrible tsunami a few years ago in Indonesia? Of and, in Indonesia, I and, work on that quite a lot. And Sri yeah. Lanka, and um, I interviewed a, a geologist named Jelle de Boer. Do you know him? Yeah. He's Dutch. Yeah. And. Because when something like that happens that was so catastrophic, so many people right. died, and you know this this question is raised of this magnitude of suffering and uh, right. you know this where where is God question and and somehow this Yella de Boer, I, I went back and looked at the conversation I had with him, and he he talked about how in the with a long view of time and nature um that plate tectonics um are what make life possible <laughs> and and yeah. restore life over time. You know, here he said, um, mm. life is directly dependent on these geological processes that other planets don't have, um, that we don't know that other planets have this type of plate tectonics um, or these extensive oceans, and that's probably why there, there may not be life there. He said, here we are lucky. We're lucky because of these processes where the plates separate and crack and where they run over each other and crack. And a, as a consequence of that, magmas form at deep levels in the earth. They are brought to the surface, and they bring not only nutrients but also water, and that is the essence of life. I mean, it, it's this long <laughs> yes, view of yes. life. This, this is perfectly true, but, you know... I, uh, if, 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 for example, I look at the controversy between uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, mm -hmm. and uh, Voltaire mm -hmm. uh, immediately after the Lisbon earthquake, Voltaire had said, look at uh, how, how can that be a good God that uh, is, is uh, letting these uh, hundreds of thousands of people being killed by the earthquake and so on. And the answer of Rousseau was, look, God created them as people living in in the forest and so on. And if they had still be living in the forest instead of building huge buildings right. in which they were lived, right. there would have been barely anybody <laughs> killed. Right. right. So it's the way man has chosen to live that that is creating that. At the present time, we have, for example, half of the megapoles, uh, those more than ten million people, who are close to plate boundaries. Right. I mean, we have chosen to put them there. When right. I was a professor, associate professor in, in Tokyo University, that was at the time of the Kobe earthquake, mm. they had big discussion about should we move Tokyo, you know, in a very <laughs> dangerous place. Right. It was a very serious discussion. Right. Should we move it to the West? Right. It's true. They put it in, in one of the most dangerous places that is. That is the challenge of humanity. We are now six billion and a half people. Mm -hmm. And clearly without science and technology, we cannot live in, 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 in anymore. I mean, science and technology is essential. But at the same time, we have chosen to to certain ways of life uh, in which the environment becomes extremely dangerous for us in, in certain circumstances. So we, we have to find out the way to deal with that. And this is not uh, simple. Right. In, in Japan, for example, they have the problem of cyclones. Cyclones happen uh, you know, every year. Uh, and they had the problem of earthquakes that happen every 100 years. Now they have a choice. Uh, if they put the, uh, light uh, roofs on, on top of their homes, then with the, every year they have to do, redo the roof. Right. And, but if they do heavy roof, uh, they stand the winds. But every hundred years, the, 
the, the, the earthquake will, will, right. will kill them. They have right. chosen to put heavy <laughs> tiles, you know, so that, uh, uh, well, if we end the herd years, we yell, we, we'll have quite a few people dying, but that's life. Right. You know, and, and I think this is the problem we have with this very large humanity that has invented a completely new way of living mm-hmm. in which we have not time, we did not have time yet to test our reaction to the environment. Because right. typically you have a uh, hundred years flood, uh, 150, 200 years earthquake and so on. So in many cases, it has not even passed the first experience. And we have uh, this problem to deal with. How are we going to to tackle the problem of completely new implantations in which are not environment tested? Right. That's one of the big challenge of the, the future. Right. You know, I want to ask you, um, I know you spent time, quite a lot of time, I believe, in the United States. You were at Columbia University in New York yeah. when you made some of your important discoveries. Uh, um, and as you know, in the United States, religiosity and spirituality are out on the surface of, of the culture um, in a way that they're not in France. And I think France here is is is... is, is seem to be a very secular place, not just a secular state. And it is. Yes. And yet, and yet what intrigues me is I, what I know also from my work about France is it also is um, a birthplace and a crucible for some really global models of spiritual enlightenment and community. I mean, I, Someone like you or Jean Vanier, the L'Arche movement, um, Father Philippe, who you knew, the Taizé community, um, Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village. (laughs) These are all in France. And I I just, I want to ask you, um, it seems to me there must also be something in French culture that yields a special spiritual sensibility that you see concentrated in these places that's less well known. I just wonder if you've... Thought about well, that. France had, had had always been a a place of uh, deep spiritual uh, traditions uh, from from the start, and uh, so you have real, really an implantation of uh, of religious culture, uh, which is very important. At the same time, it had uh, this um, very anti-clerical. Uh, uh, opinions, especially view, due to the fact that the, uh, the church had evolved into a, a power. And, um, right. for example, in the place where L'Arche is, in, in uh, Compiègne, and, you know, all, all the abbeys were, were destroyed at the revolution, right. which is a clear sign. The, 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 at the time, you know, the, 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 the the obey the the guy in charge was not even in in the in the obey he was getting the money but that's it and the people uh, considered them as horrible uh, owners and and uh, people who who gave them a very hard time so uh, there was a very strong uh, anti church feeling in in the poor people and uh, in quite a few places in, in France. And, and this tradition has kept and, and has been uh, installed by the revolution, which was clearly anti-church right. and, and tried to kill, the, make the church disappear. And then um, this tradition has always been um, 
present from then on very strongly. So it's 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 a place where the two clash, mm. <laughs> and and the proper of of a real uh, spiritual movement is that you don't struggle, you don't fight. You know, you you just try to by your way of living to to try to demonstrate that uh, religious life can be a very good one and can bring a lot of food. So it's not an equal fight. Right. So it's the sense. This, this, this spiritual, this deep spiritual sensibility, even the religiosity be- became in a sense mm-hmm. disconnected from the institutions. And so it- well, I think the, the, the institution failed. Uh-huh. I think clearly the church, the church uh, made some, some bad moves. Uh, even the, 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 the way the, the Pope, uh, uh, was running a state, you know, when you see what, what he was doing in in, in the central Italy, uh, that was terrible. I mean, it was very, very bad government. Right, and, right. And uh, so the, the, there has been, uh, Luther was right, in my opinion, to to to, right. to fight to fight what was happening in the church. He was completely right. So uh, it's clear that even within the religious movement, there was this recognition that something you know the, the the thing is that uh, money corrupts, but power absolutely corrupts. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the church becomes powerful, then it it it's not the church anymore. Okay. And this is what we are trying to beginning to see now. It's when the church has no power, no political power, no money power that it can begin to to be really the the church of Jesus. Mm. And you say that as a <clears throat> you say that as a devout. Lifelong Catholic. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. That doesn't prevent you of seeing what happened. Right, I mean, right. uh, it, it's clear. Uh, I think that's one of the ch- things that uh, Jan, John Paul II said that uh, uh, we had to to ask for forgiveness for all the mm-hmm. the sins were, were that were committed in the name of the Church. Right. I, I want to just ask you a couple more questions. I want to be quiet for a minute, and I'm going to be listening at my headphones while I see if my colleagues yeah. behind the glass have anything for me. Sure. Thank you. So this is wonderful. I don't want to keep, okay. keep you too much longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um <clears throat> so you you mentioned earlier we we talked a little bit about yeah. um that there's a lot of new scientific interest in notions like compassion and um i noticed in something you wrote a couple of years ago you said you were you were striving to set up a scientific research program uh with a colleague who's a physicist and philosopher on the importance of fragility and vulnerability in the development of humanity kind of exploring that idea that you've had about our evolution as human beings is is that happening is that work yes yes Mm. Uh, actually uh this is one of the signs i've seen in the last two three years been quite a few places where there have been colloquium on this subject. There has been a research program that are starting now on this subject. And I can, 
I think without too much risk of uh, fooling myself, uh, <laughs> say that within five years or so, that will be a major uh, scientific uh, investigation. Hmm. Understanding what is the significance and role of uh, weakness, fragility in, in the human being. I think that is a very important thing. And I believe that uh, what we have seen in the last 10 years coming, you know, in, in this story about altruism and how, how is altruism the same in man and, and uh, in animals elsewhere and so on, which is one of the things that was proposed in the beginning and where now people say, well, there are different things and so on. So uh, I think it will go beyond that to, to this new step, recognizing that it comes from something much deeper, mm. which comes from the realization of by man of his own fragility and weakness and the, the capacity that he has to relate to others in their fragility and weakness through uh, compassion, through empathy. And of course, there's a there are ethical and bioethical um, currents that this that this is kind of in tension with, and even a cult, pieces of our culture, at least American culture, maybe Western mm-hmm. culture, because we really we strive for perfection, right? And mm-hmm. we have ideas that our medical technologies, in particular will bring us ever closer to perfection. And so there's something pushing against that a bit in you. I mean, you've talked about um, the limits of normalization attempts. And what, what you're saying is that there is this fragility, there are defects, there are handicaps, there are disabilities, there there's illness. And that somehow that's a very important life-giving part of the whole picture of human life. Absolutely. Um, and what I'm saying is that uh, if uh, you consider that the so-called normalization, you know, that uh, it does mean that you have a prototype. I mean, there has to be a prototype to which you normalize somebody. A normal, right? normal human being. <laughs> a norm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. What is a normal human being? And if you, you look at that carefully, you find out that it's basically... Uh, and a successful adult uh, who has a lot of pleasure and lives well. And, and this is a completely wrong picture of what is life about. Mm. You know? uh, life is about, in my opinion, relationship between people. That's the first thing. So it should not be one person. It should be a type of relationship between people. And the second thing, this relationship to me is, is the, the, the deep desire that we have in us of communion, really sharing at the deepest level. And that this requires the capacity to recognize that when we enter into this relationship, we are weak. You know, somebody mm-hmm. who loves somebody else <laughs> is in a weak position. He's, he's not in a con- Querying position. He's mm. in a weak position. And that's why God is weak in front of us. Mm. This is something that if you don't understand that, you, you cannot understand what, what man is about. So if you begin in this, from this point of view and you say there is no prototype in a sense, so how can there be normalization? You can help somebody uh, get rid of what he considered to be uh, something uh, Handicapping himself. I mean, he says, I have such a handicap, I I need not to be considered through my handicap, which is fine. That's 
that is very well. Mm -hmm. But it's something else to say you have to be made as the guy next to you who who is a, an adult full of life and so on, which is ridiculous. He knows he cannot. I mean, you you, know? you have a story of a, someone you've known with Marfan syndrome, Marfan disease, which um, it, which is one of the many ailments now that there's genetic testing for. And you know, mm. you know, he asked this very provocative question. Um, so the the bioethics laws now um, say that doctors must inform parents of this genetic defect. Right. And he asked, <clears throat> and he asked. You know, who will inform the parents that genetic disease and happiness are not antinomic terms? That is, you know, clearly that's going to be a very controversial question. And yet um, I don't think that kind of question gets raised in our public deliberation. It's true that uh, this comes from, again, uh, a misunderstanding about what, what men and women are. It's this misunderstanding that uh, you know you have a normalization poss- possibility. Uh, mm-hmm. That is not correct. Each person is unique, and each person has a possibility to make a unique life uh, with interaction with the other in a society. And um, once this is recognized, then you recognize that each needs to be considered as necessary for the others. If the other do not consider their life as necessary for them, then it becomes, the whole thing becomes to degrade. Right. You know, when I, and I feel like we're, we're talking a lot, I mean, a lot of your um, life has been shared with people with disabilities, but in our cultures, I mean, there are great tensions between people who are weak for a number of reasons, right? Economically, racially. And that idea that we need this, this, that we need, as you said, we've have this chance now as a, planet to understand ourselves as a people, but there are huge realizations we need to make about belonging to other people who we don't feel a connection with at this point, for many reasons. Hi, but, you know, uh, for example, when I was in Calcutta and I spent these months and a half uh, uh, with the, the brothers of charity in the streets, really, you know, with the people of the slums and mm-hmm. so on, I found out... Uh, this extraordinary way of belonging to them, you know, I was accepted by them. They, they, they loved me. They, they, they treated me as one of them. Mm-hmm. And I discovered, you know, their suffering, of course, but also the immense joy, capacity of relationship that was in there. Right. So it is, there is a, a, you know, a treasure hidden in, in each of the community, in each of the society that is not possible to access unless you you immerse yourself in it. And we have a tendency to see all of that through the um, point of view of uh, our occidental cultures, you know. Right, right. We don't realize that there are treasures everywhere in this life that we consider, uh, you know, uh, rotten life, life that, that, that have no possibility. Well, that's flawed. Are. Yeah, mm-hmm. this this is this is something uh, that uh, has to be recognized. That life has an extreme diversity, and this diversity is its richness. You know, you mm-hmm. cannot standardize life. 
Right, and then uh, again, you're talking as a scientist as much as that. No, you cannot. That's horrible. Right. If you begin to normalize things, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you cannot normalize man. You cannot normalize a baby. You cannot normalize an old man. He, he's unique. So how can you normalize him? Mm-hmm. My, my last question, I, I was reading your essay in a book on the history of plate tectonics, um, and you, 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 you finished your essay saying that you recall the colleague saying to you that never more in our life will we be able to contribute to such a decisive and exciting discovery. Right. And you talked about the extraordinary feeling of um, what you lived through of actually um, being involved in a revolution, a mutation of the whole of earth sciences. And uh, I, I want to kind of come back to a question that we've, skirted around and this these passions that have consumed um, at least as much of the rest of your life after all those discoveries um, about humanity and suffering. I mean, how do you think about the effect, the success, <laughs> you know, the impact of of that kind of energy that you spend that you've spent in these other decades of your life with other human beings? Well, you know, I've, I've always in my life have this love of God, love of my family, love of, of the world, mm-hmm. <laughs> of the earth, of the universe. Yeah. You know? And uh, uh, it, it, I then discovered later on the love of the suffering people, which I found was, was, could, could not be separated from from the love of God. Actually, I could not go to God unless I, I, I went through these people. Mm. And all this seems, in a sense, incompatible. You know, somebody once asked me, how you maintain unity in your life? Are not you schizophrenic? <laughs> and my answer, <laughs> my answer was, it's through prayer. I spend a lot of time in prayer. I, I pray at least one or two hours a day. Mm. And it is through the prayer of God that unity can be put into this extremely different field. I think that's that's the power of God that uh, when you ask him, he lets you unify things that apparently cannot be unified. Mm. I, I wonder if, you know, this scientific research you're now embarking on, on vulnerability and suffering as part of human life, if that, if we, would you see that as a continuation of this dialogue with the earth that you talked about, that you began as a scientist in your... I, I would say that uh, I, I'm not claiming I'm really doing research on that. Mm. But, I mean, they are specialists. I'm, I've uh, thought about that, uh, make new thoughts, and I've pushed specialists to work on that, and they are, they are starting to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I will do, for example, next week in, in uh, New York, I hope, is to, with this very good specialist, to tell them, I, I think you should look beyond, and to me, this is part of a very important human experience you have to explain. Yeah. So uh, I, I know what it is to be a specialist because I am a specialist in, in, right. in, on the earth. I cannot uh, probably give... Uh, important new discovery in this new domain. What I can do is have reflection that helps steer research in direction that are new and important. And I, I can feel that uh, 
the, the whole field of biological and anthropological sciences is going to move in this direction. Hmm. All right. That's wonderful. Um, thank you so much. Uh, okay. We will... Um, We'll let you know uh, when this will be airing. We'll send you a CD because I know you, you, well, you can listen online, but you won't be able to hear it on the radio in France. Okay. I, I will, I will, uh, I have a, a son in the States. So oh, good. You can still give me that and I will send it to All you. All right. We'll let you know. And yes, you can let him know. And uh, I just, I'm so delighted that you made this happen. And uh, it's just been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye.